Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. What do you think it is about this moment now that climate change, the environment, sustainability has become such a huge topic? I mean, there's always been an interest in it, but why do we now have 16-year-old girls uh, on world stages like rock stars telling we're all going to die? I think the climate events that we're seeing now, we've never seen them before. So like starting from a facts point, um, the, the climate changes evidence that we have now, we have never seen it before. Um, the changing uh, temperatures, um, the rising um, uh, sea levels, um, having biodiversity uh, being affected to the level that it's affected today. We've never seen anything like that. So I think now people have started to see the evidence uh, and feel it like on a daily uh, basis, even if they don't understand the depth of the science uh, of climate change. And, and, and this is something you, you've spoken about before, isn't it? Because when we, because uh, I think you've compared it to, say, an act of terrorism. You know, when you, when you blow up a building or bring down a plane, even though the number of people involved may be very small, it generates an immediate outpouring of grief and anger and response. Mm -hmm. But the environment seems to move a lot slower in general. Yeah. So, so climate change is, is a process that takes tens to hundreds and thousands and more uh, years. So many generations have not even felt anything that is related to climate change in terms of changing weather patterns or anything like that. But because of that pace, we're unable to perceive the danger that is associated with climate change, and it is a long-term game. Uh, and every newer, the, the newer the generation is, it's closer to feel the, the threats of climate change. And that's why probably like we're listening to uh, um, 16 years old <laughs> activists. Um, but yes, the human nature uh, is actually responsive and takes action only when there is uh, a danger that is very close that they can actually feel it. We're, we're not as responsive to concepts that we know are dangerous but are not affecting us right now. I'm having a chat in London today with Dr. Anas Abuhamed, who is the founder of H2Go Power. Uh, she is not 16, but she is very young and has been consistently voted in lists of the uh, youngest and most influential uh, leaders in the areas of science and sustainability. Uh, we met in Lake Como. <laughs> uh, not at George Clooney's house, but uh, actually at a very, very just just down just downstream uh, at the uh, Ambrosetti uh, Global Forum, uh, where she gave a, a, a fascinating uh, talk and uh, won an award. So it's great to see you again. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. <laughs> um, and you know what, what I think is so interesting about your story is that it's uh, the perfect example of really the path forward, um, not just for uh, finding solutions to the energy crisis, but for the next generation, because what you're doing is science-led. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, H2Go Power and, and I guess, the, the, the particular science that, that you've been working on? Thanks for asking me this question, because this is really a question that I like to answer. H2Go <laughs> Power is really a scientific project. It started from uh, my PhD days uh, five years ago uh, when I was 
still a PhD student, we officially registered H2Go Power. And it was on the back of my PhD uh, research. Uh, I was working on scientific research that has to do with storing hydrogen. Hmm. And hydrogen has always been uh, an interesting um, energy carrier because it doesn't have carbon in the first place. So when you burn it, it generates energy, but it doesn't generate carbon. And this... The only byproduct is steam, basically. Uh, exactly. Yeah. The only byproduct is, uh, is, is water vapor that we could recycle into uh, water. And it's such an elegant chemical reaction. So I was working on this during my PhD. Um, and had, a, had a patent. thought it was uh, uh, an exciting project. But to be honest, I could not link it to a real-world problem until I went to give a talk in Africa and then just going around and seeing energy poverty uh, made me think that actually there is there is no impact to this project unless we turn it into actively into a business or a, 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 a medium that could deliver a solution to people. And this is by translating scientific research into products. So even if they cannot understand the scientific depth that went into building the product, they could benefit from using it. People have been talking about using hydrogen as a way of storing energy for, I think since the 50s and 60s, like quite a long time. I mean, even the Japanese built a few hydrogen cars and things like that. Why has it taken so long to make this work? And, and I guess what's changed now? It, it has been definitely, uh, hydrogen is not a new technology. It's, it's been there for, for a really long time. The issues with commercializing hydrogen is us being able to produce hydrogen at scale in a clean way, now we know how to do that in a cost, with, within a cost structure that we can compare to other alternatives. Right. And I think it needed to get to a point where we, um, we can reduce the cost of renewable energy to a point that if you wanted to produce green hydrogen from renewable energy, the cost of renewable energy makes sense to do that, and the cost of the process, which is the electrolysis, as well makes sense. And we're getting closer and closer with time. If we throw in money to develop these processes, we can get their costs down to a point where we can introduce them to users at competitive prices. And I think this is where the market is getting to, and it wasn't there before. Right. Tell me a bit about your trip to Africa. What, what did you... What did you see there that made you realize that energy storage was, was the particular piece of the problem that we were missing? So my, my experience was really eye-opening in terms of, I was, I think, 28 years old or something like that. And I really didn't know that there are 1.2 billion people around the world who don't have access to reliable power in the world. And when I saw it, I thought that, it's uh, it's awful. They don't have the switch that we that we have. Uh, as much as it sounds funny when you see it in, in in a camp where people really design their life around when the sun the sun is is up and what they can do um, and when 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 there is no uh, when they don't really, they really don't have. I mean, diesel and, and energy that is coming from diesel is 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 
uh, a luxury commodity. Yeah. Not even everyone. I, I know has what you mean. That. I remember flying over shanty towns in Johannesburg, and they'd they'd all be in complete darkness, and the only thing that was lit up would be a big sign advertising like some sort of consumer product. Yeah. And that was the only source of illumination in the whole town. Yes. So it's it's really shocking because in the developed world, many people leave their houses with the light on, right? Yeah. And in some other parts, in the same world. At the same time, at the same year, we're not talking like hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. We're talking about the same time, same word. Some people have access to power and they take it for granted, and some people like see this as a luxury uh, a product that they cannot access. Uh, and it just just in terms of like human rights or how, how experience like this affects you. Um, I think this experience on its own was the, the driver really to think about can we do something with this research that could maybe one day impact some people to have, to have power. And basically that, that thinking process led me to kind of go have these conversations with, with the team that was working on, on that project. Uh, obviously it's a team effort. And uh, we basically thought that the solution that we're, we're working on could be the energy storage solution that bridges the gap between generating clean energy, which in the developing world people are uh, adopting, like they're buying solar pal- panels, uh, they're adopting uh, renewable technology solutions because the cost makes sense, and to have uh, access to power for long duration without the need to have to go and raise the funding needed to build infrastructure because right. there isn't, you could bridge that gap. Right, so you don't have to rely on a sophisticated electricity grid. Um, exactly, that takes billions to load, build. And, yeah. and load management and all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. in order to be able to immediately develop results. Exactly, so yeah. immediately you could build a, a reliable energy system within a matter of um, days or, or weeks depends how big is the. the I've seen one of your products. It's actually like a. It's, it's basically a like a shipping container, right? That you could just put next to a hospital. This is this is exactly the product that we're we're um, uh, developing at the moment. We want to make it like the product look like a box. Right. So the user won't have to think about the complicated science that you have inside the box, but it would just give you what you need, which is reliable power for long durations. Right. And it'd be a really powerful proposition as well for um, NGOs or charities who are trying to, because it's, it's something tangible you could immediately invest in and, and, and basically drop ship. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, this, this is exactly the, the idea behind it. And, and, and um, um, NGOs uh, and charities would be users um, that we rely on, but also we want to get the cost structure right so customers as well could have access to power even if the uh, charitable funding was not there. So, so you know, this, this goes to one of the conundrums about climate change, you know, from what I understand, is that, you know, in the West, it's, it, there's this whole spirit of revolution right now and rebellion, of course, and, and all the celebrities are getting involved and people are saying we should eat more broccoli and ride bicycles and things like that and not fly too much. But actually, when you look at it, the biggest driver of um, carbon emissions is the emerging world. 
you know, which is not something we always want to talk about. Mm -hmm. But you can't also say to those people that you can't have economic development because these people, as you say, have no power and they have no clean water and they're, they're, they're leading terrible lives. So what is the interconnection between these three things, you know, between um, sort of disruptive clean tech energy, economic development and climate change? How are they all related? So the pressure on developing countries to develop is obviously higher than on developed countries. So they won't go for the luxury of picking and choosing um, the best fuel, uh, the cleanest fuel. Or being vegan. uh, Or being (laughs) vegan. They would go for, it's, it's, it's an emergency mode where they have to act for what's the cheapest fuel that we could use to develop fast. Uh, and um, that is basically uh, diesels. That so far it has been like they're, they're um, mostly reliant on um, on diesel, which is um, uh, emitting, polluting. It's causing uh, uh, communities around uh, areas where you consume a lot of diesel, a lot of health issues, air pollution. Uh, doesn't necessarily uh, encourage building productive societies but it could have negative impacts as well. Right. Uh, but, but it is really, it is coming from the emergency mode where p- these countries have the pressure to develop fast um, uh, and they're not as relaxed as the developed world. No, so I mean, even getting them to agree to a Paris Accord is, 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 is sort of difficult for them to do when they've got people starving, basically. Yeah, exactly. So uh, thinking about the quality of the air, it doesn't come as like a top priority uh, or, or the quality of the wood. It's not, it's not a top priority and, and this is something that we, we can understand. Uh, and the question is, what do we do about this? Do we um, put the blame on the developing world side or we can try and, and balance basically what happens in, in the world by maybe subsidizing the cost of these new disruptive technologies new disruptive technologies and introduce it to the to the developing world so they can have reliable access to power but at the same time clean power so they develop yeah i mean when you look yeah. at other fields um, in africa in particular you've seen that they've been willing to jump technologies so mm-hmm. in um, mobile finance uh, and in uh, even the use of drones for medicine. Uh, there's, there's, there's some interesting case studies where they've just basically gone to a whole new technology because the price is right, but also they didn't need to build the previous infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a really good test bed for uh, dis- disruptive technologies that could be introduced to communities in demand uh, without having to build a heavy infrastructure, heavily costing uh, infrastructure. Could, could it be a model for all of us, though? I mean, we, we've made huge investments over the last hundred years in our electricity grid, but is there a model if you were to build a new city today where you do it in a more decentralized way? Like, what would a, what would a smart city running on um, hydrogen look like? You would want, when you're talking about decentralized, you would want to pick and choose the best solution for the best usage and put them together. Right. Uh, and if you have, uh, uh, if you have, you know, uh, a space where you don't have structure, you can do whatever you want. So you have more freedom to do things like that in the developing world because you don't have a lot of structure, yeah. which is an advantage. Uh, in the developed world, it's not like that, right? We have a lot of structures. Our grids are working really well. So changing the uh, the uh, like the energy transition is going to take quite a lot of time because we have a lot of structure that we need to change and restructure, uh, and and basically that's 
rebuilding cities rather than starting from a place where they're not built and and, and uh, conversion is actually harder than, than so, building so, so from So bizarrely scratch. you might see the city of the future more likely in the emerging world than in the developed world. It, it, uh, that, that would be definitely a, a, a picture that I see like how this could work efficiently. Right. And, and what would that look like? How would you you know, if you were planning for energy usage and you had a clean sheet of paper, how would you do it? Um, would you still have a? Would you still have big power stations feeding a grid? You know, even if it was using a more energy efficient, or, or would you basically put hydrogen batteries in everyone's homes and their cars? I would customize more. I would look at where you are because some cities are bigger than other cities, and some cities are. Uh, closer to the water. Some cities, uh, they have um, more access to the sun. Right, or uh, geothermal. Or, exactly. Right. So I would customize a lot based on where you are, what weather conditions you have around you, uh, what's the type of the behavior of the people who are, who are living in the cities, what houses they live in. They live in big building blocks or they live in houses or they live in... Um, Right, so or on the mountain, or it's, right? So it, density. And yes, so it's it's it really depends on um, where you are. New York is very different from like Como, uh, yeah. so so you probably won't be able to apply the same solution or system that you have it that would work in Lake Como that 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 uh, would also work in in New York. So I would customize based on where you are. It's it's an inter- it's, it's definitely going to be an interesting job of the future, isn't it? Because. I mean, when you when you look at your solution and others that people are working on, they're, they're really like this closed loop, mm-hmm. you know, where you have, um, you know, energy being created and then it's being converted and stored and then recycled. And and so there's sort of a, as you say, it's very much customized to the, to the application and the environment and the, where the energy is coming from. You almost have these sort of algorithmic thermal designers, mm-hmm. you know, who, are, who, who look at the way we live and... And, and it kind of goes back to old times when they used to use water as a form of air conditioning, right? Yeah, and, and uh, also that that ties to efficiency as well. Right. The more you customize, the more efficient your energy system could be because you're looking at the demand and you're responding with designing an energy system that and, has to And why is efficiency important? Is it so you don't get leakages from the system, basically? Yes, leakages from the system depends on what what is the the um, um, uh, energy source that you're using in the first place let's assume that 100% of the energy is um, is renewable energy then the more efficient you are maybe you could make a trade of of existing uh, um, um, electricity that you've already generated, you know, um, could mine bitcoins with it or um, sell it to your neighbors or just um, moving energy around. It's much better than wasting it because you have already generated it. So you could have that luxury. Uh, if, if, you were, if, you're, if you started from 100% renewable energy, but what about if you didn't start from 100% and you, you integrated carbon in the mix? Uh, that's when it becomes really critical to become to be very efficient because if you're inefficient that means that gets translated into um, carbon produced and released to the atmosphere right and and so in the future we're gonna have a better sense of where the power came from and what its uses should be if we have any surplus right mm-hmm. yeah that, that makes sense I mean you know the, the topic of batteries is, is interesting beyond just saving the environment and climate change it's 
it really affects our applications. You know, we were we were talking a little bit about the, you know the rise of flight shame. You know, this whole <laughs> idea that you know I, I sometimes wonder whether in ten or fifteen years people like us are going to be called up to account for all of our uh, our travels and flying. But part of this, the problem, of course, with planes is that you know you, we don't have electric planes today because the batteries weigh too much mm-hmm. and and fuel as you know as terrible as it sounds is a relatively lightweight way of energy storage yeah it's um it's uh, it, it has enough energy density that can uh, keep uh, an airplane in the in the sky for you know the duration of your flight right. I mean, there's at, been a problem a, with drones a, as well in the past as well yeah, yeah. At, at a weight that is is uh, very reasonable um I am personally pro, I'm a scientist, I'm pro finding solutions to problems instead of uh, saying, let's ban flights. Maybe maybe it will be a solution that we decide in a few years time that, that this, is, this is like one direction to go. But we should try first finding solutions to the problem and say, can we keep people as productive as they are? Uh, if they wanted to fly, they can fly. But the work that we do is not on activism against flights and and productivity. If 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 that that if flying means productivity to to people, but work on solution that actually eliminate carbon uh, uh, from um, generating carbon uh, through flights and using fuels like hydrogen that when you burn them they don't they don't produce um, um, carbon so um, so the act of flying is not a problem it's 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 actually the we have to we have to leverage science basically and yes. innovation to find a, a less destructive form of carbon. yeah and if if you'd ask me about uh, why people are not talking about that, I, I really don't know why. I really don't know why we're so active about thinking about let's ban flying yeah. and we're not as active about thinking and saying what can we do to keep productivity going but replace the solutions that we have at the moment uh, with more uh, efficient and eliminate the problem, solve it rather than create productivity problem by, by asking people not to fly. Right. What, what are the, you know, in almost every domain, things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and, 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 and I guess the falling price of computation is having a huge impact on our ability to generate solutions, whether it's in, um, in, in, in the biosciences or, uh, or in other aspects of the computing revolution. Are we seeing some of these technologies also impacting um, material science and battery design and, and, and energy management as well. Um, yes, um, uh, for, for sure. Uh, the efficiency in research that digitalization and tools like that uh, introduce basically make research results come out faster. Right. And uh, and this has a huge impact in getting closer to a solution that could be adopted in a shorter period of time. Uh, and that has definitely impacted uh, research in these fields uh, very positively and reduced the cost of research. Right. What's the biggest problem you're working on right now that's keeping you awake at night? Um, so in, in terms of 
the business that we're working on, uh, we, we have, I think, achieved uh, quite a lot on the technical side and, and solving scientific problems. And the, the biggest problems that, that we're working towards is trying to scale the technical and scientific solution that we, uh, we have developed and design it into products that work in different areas. Um, so we work on um, energy storage by, by storing the energy uh, as in the form of hydrogen. Uh, we have designed two products. So far, one of them is for drones to make right. drones fly for longer. Uh, and well, how, how much? How much extra time do you get with a drone running on hydrogen versus traditional batteries? So uh, we're, we're looking at the one to three uh, longer flight time. So three times longer uh, the flight with a hydrogen uh, stored uh, system, system with hydrogen storage uh, as opposed to typical lithium polymer. Uh, and how would it work? I mean, basically, if you owned a hydrogen drone, would you buy hydrogen batteries or would you have some sort of hydrogen infuser at home? Uh, you know, to, um, to run it. So we have successfully piloted a system in Boston a few weeks ago. Right. And basically what we did there, we 3D printed uh, uh, systems that could store hydrogen. And we combined that with a fuel cell that is designed to fly uh, on, uh, on a drone. Uh, and basically integrated uh, uh, both in a 20 kilogram body of, of a drone and uh, a hexacopter. And, uh, and that uh, basically, um, that, that was the, the first system that we trialed. So, so uh, do you see this as something that, you know, will, will enter consumer lives as well? I mean, will we basically have hydrogen storage potentially? Or, uh, or, or is it going to be more for like larger scale applications? Thank you very much for asking me this question. So. It, it, it has to be a technical answer that, that I'm going to give. I want to hear a technical give. answer. <laughs> uh, so basically, we have to design a product that makes sense to sell. Because this goes to the scaling question. Exactly. Right? Yes. And um, this solution becomes competitive with lithium-ion batteries the larger the system is. Because your payload gains then becomes highlighted. So if you think about EV tolls, that's like a really good positioning for where this technology could, could be impactful. Is it significantly lighter than lithium? Because uh, you have to build a, a lithium stack, don't you? Like of different metals. and Yeah, and the amount of energy that you could store per unit weight and per unit volume right. is This is the higher. energy density point. Exactly, the right. energy density point. So that's why it can be superior in performance when you're talking about larger scale, when you're talking about smaller scale, you don't have that advantage. Right. So a AAA battery, lithium batteries, is exactly still beating more that. With, yeah. Right. And it's almost not worthwhile. So for you to get scale, you have to get scale in the industrial application. Yes. Yeah. For sure. So if you were going to look ahead at the world of 2030, and we were using hydrogen in more, whether it's cars or drones or planes, what do you think would change in our day-to-day -day lives? Or, or in the in the business models of the people operating these these kind of uh, applications. Um, I think we can be relaxed about our decarbonization targets if we are integrating more hydrogen into more products that could um, emit uh, carbon, and at the same time achieve storage performance that meets. Um, the demand needs, which is very important because we're not trying to compromise efficiency or 
um, uh, storage capacity or supply to, to the rising demands that we have. We're trying to develop a product that is actually better than what you have at the moment and at the same time does not release carbon. So if we develop these solutions and use them and uh, become dependent on using solutions like that, I see that first people become like feel that they're more responsible by, by using products that has less negative impact on their environment, the air they breathe, the planet that they're going to leave to their children and grandchildren. Uh, and at the same time, their demand for power will be met. And if, if the cost makes sense uh, to do all that, I don't see why people wouldn't. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.